before God took me deep into his name, which is who he was, I personally decided that I would first do his will. And his will for you as Christians is that you descend. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his rights and prerogatives as God, something to be held on to, but humbled himself and he descended into this stinking world full of a bunch of ungrateful people. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. Submitted to death. Why? For our benefit. And as Christians, we have a call to descend. A lot of, a lot of people who call themselves Christians think God is a big lever to make them rich, to give them pr- pr- you know, promotion, a hot spouse, the quarterback on the football team, whatever they think as a kid, whatever they think they're supposed to get. Pad their 401k. Keep them from getting sick. We were created and then recreated, redeemed, so that we could function like God. How does God function? He descends to rescue. That's what he does. If we think Christianity is something else, oh, it's about my ticket to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. That looks miserable. I want to go to heaven. I want to go to magic pony land. I want to, I want to sing songs around the throne and be blessed and have warm fuzzies running through my body for all eternity. What's that? That's me, 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 me. I want to be saved for health and wealth and prosperity. And I'm going to be the head and not the tail and me, 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 me. And I think a lot of us are just totally missing the point. If we're created to be like God, we're created to descend so that we can rescue. And so I was thinking about this. Two passages that really changed my life. The first one was Isaiah 58. And the second one was Exodus Exodus 34, 6. One of them has to do with the will of God. And the other one has to do with the heart of God. Both of them totally blew my mind. And I always wondered, why did God show me what his will was before he showed me his name or his character? Because if you want to know his character, and I see this all the time on the group, pray that I would know the character of God. Pray that God would reveal his character to me. I just figured this out the last two days. God said, if you want to know my heart, you got to do my will. Don't do my will. I'm not going to show you my heart. You may be technically saved. You may have put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but if you're not willing to do my will, I'm not taking you into the secrets of who I am. You're not going to see it. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 7. Fascinating verse. The Jews were astonished and they said, how is this man, this is Jesus, become learned, having never been educated, meaning never gone to our schools. God will educate you better than any school can educate you if you'll do things as well. He'll take you into mysteries the world doesn't even have access to. Things which eyes not seen, ears not heard, haven't even entered in the heart of man. Everything that God has prepared for those who love him. He can show you. He can educate you. But they said, Jesus didn't go through our schools. How is he educated? Jesus said to them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. There's a doing aspect that needs to happen first in obedience 
before the confirmation, before God's going to take you. And that's what, that's, so I finally went, oh, oh, this is really like the last couple of, that's why God showed me this passage from Isaiah 58 before he showed me this vision of him that brought peace and rest to my soul that I've been walking in for about 20 years now. And when I share it sometimes to people and God's spirit is on me to share it, they will fall apart, like right in front of me. They'll fall apart because they're, they're, it's such a wonderful, amazing, it's what we're longing to know about. That's who we're longing for him to be. But he's, he doesn't just whip it out, dole it out to any old person, even Christians. He said, if you want to see my heart, I need you to surrender, submit, and get on board with my program. Then I'll show you my heart. Then it'll kind of motivate you a little bit to stick with it. I don't even know if I should go here. There's somebody that I'm dealing with. And, and we like broken people in this church. We love broken people. We go, you don't know my problem. I guarantee you there's someone in the church that's got you beat. Whatever you think your problem is. If they're not the church, you can call them afterwards. Because one of some of my friends, I mean, most people think they're so extreme and they're just middlers at best. But someone I was dealing with, and I had a planned out for them a place to live and a place to work. And I knew a whole bunch of people too that would just rush in and help this individual out. But I was waiting for them to get, make the commitment, to see them make that commitment to turn away from their sin and to turn. I was just waiting. I was just waiting. That's the same thing with God. No, prove it to me first and then I'll obey. Look, I'm the Lord. Do what I say. And then I will show you. That's the way it works. And it broke my heart because I was like, you know, my hair is getting thinner, so I have to be careful about pulling it out when I get frustrated. But I was like, if you only knew. Uh, and I'm just a human. What I would do for you, brother, if you would just do it right. I can't enable you. I can't throw money at you and give you rides and all this if you're going to destroy people with your wickedness. But if you would just surrender and do it right. I'll take out my ATM card. You can sleep in my house. I will. And God's like <laughs> me 10,000 times more. So God showed me, I got, I got with this condescension thing. And so very soon thereafter, God showed me a vision of his heart that blew my mind and continues to keep a hurricane in my sails so that I'm very motivated for what I do. And it keeps me alive and it keeps me excited about the, my faith. But I guess as I was thinking about this whole ascension thing, that, that's what's hit me all week long. You got to descend. You got to descend. You got to descend. You got to descend. Jesus didn't die to fulfill the American dream. He didn't die to be your big lover. I said lever, not lover. Lever. So you could get your, you know, two cars and your nice suburban house and your white pig. So why he died? He died to save you from being a selfish, scratching, clawing little monster that's bringing pain to everybody around you and make, make you like him so that you're a river of life and a fountain of joy and you have a wake of people behind you are blessed because you existed. That's the only thing that's ever going to make you happy. So anyway, it's kind of amazed me. I was like, oh, God took me deep into his name after I committed to do his will. And what he had shown me his will was, was to descend. 
This is kind of interesting. The Bible-believing born-again church, I came across this word reading, doing some study. In the early 1900s, there's something that happened to Bible-believing born-again Christians, and they call it the Great Reversal. Scholars call it the Great Reversal. This is a term coined by historian Timothy Smith. refers to the 180-degree turn among Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians away from social concern like helping widows, orphans, and the poor. Prior to the 1900s, evangelicals, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, were known for societies fighting against social ills like illiteracy, racism, economic injustice, child labor, sex trafficking. What does that mean? It means people that used to claim to be Christians were condescending not in the negative sense of that word, but I mean, literally in the Jesus sense. Where's the darkness? That's where we're going. Who brought it into slavery? Bible-believing born-again Christians. If you, if you look back, but who turned the English-speaking world on its head around the 1700s and brought social justice to, I mean, do you know what Sunday school originally was? It was to teach the poor kids on Sunday because they were, they were illiterate and there was no other time for them to learn. But then the, the Bible-believing born-again Christians also, uh, they brought reform in it. They said, hey, you're, you're, you should treat prisoners better than this. And they brought prison reform and they brought all kinds. They, ch- kids shouldn't be working in, in factories for 20 hours a day. That's not cool. They said wherever there was darkness and oppression, the Christians went and busted in there and got involved. Hey, we need to get all these girls off the street. That's not cool that poor girls get into prostitution. There's no little girl that, you, you know, at five years, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a prostitute. This is not a reality. They want to be a princess. They want to be someone's treasure. They want to be a mommy. They want to be a bride. They want to wear white. They said, well, that's not right. Let's fix that. Let's get these girls out of prostitution and create, they create homes for the, these prostitutes. This is orphanages. That's what we used to do. We used to condescend. And what, what, what are we doing in the last hundred years as Bible-believing, born-again Christians? <laughs> Sorry for me to... This phrase that always comes to mind. My best life now. Your best life now. About me. I'm going to use God, and I'm going to get the best out of this world. Money. And t- now, I haven't been shortchanged at all by the Lord. You know, and some people say, you brag about, but I wasn't seeking any of it. I wasn't, I wasn't, I really wasn't seeking any of it. And I lived in poverty. I literally, there are times in doing this conversation, I had to pray for my daily bread. People left groceries or rang my doorbell and handed me my rent. I didn't call anybody. I prayed, give us this day our daily bread. And then I found out when you're actually doing the stuff, it works. Those prayers work. But now I'm like, you know, life has been pretty sweet. I've been all over the world. All my kids got through college without any debt. I got a great marriage. I got, I mean, I got all kinds of great stuff going on and a whole bunch of amazing relationships. A lot of them right here in this room. I don't feel like by not pursuing that stuff, I lost by, so God's not going to rip you off. It's just the devil's lie in the garden. It's just, you get blessed, but don't seek that. Seek to be like Jesus. Seek to condescend. Seek to go into dark places. So there's this great reversal that happened in our churches. And even now, the big Bible-believing born-again churches have nothing for the poor. When I discovered this, I got in trouble. I started getting in trouble. And it wasn't until I got to have my own church that I stopped getting in trouble. 
because it's my church, you know, and I'm leading it. I'm like, oh, you don't like it. Just go to another church because this is what we do. We want drug addicts. We want homeless people. We want to, you know, we want to help orphans. And what, and what I feel like God told me is, Ted, you've kind of lost sight of that. Look, you scraped some folks off the road. And uh, I've done some miracles restoring them. And what happens is they tend to get married and have kids and move into nice houses. And, and then you forget. Forget who you were and where you came from and who they were and where they came from. And I just feel like I almost like had a new awakening. God's like, remember, remember who I am and where I am. I'm with the broken. So honestly, if this church loses us, we're just going to dry up. We exist for the broken. Because even the people who aren't broken, they're broken. They just won't admit it. Some people are so broken, they can't fake it. Those are the people we want. So God woke me up to this. Let me see. Oh, I was just going to do a little run through history here. This whole condescension thing. I have to do this quick. Who's that? Amy Carmichael. Who's she with? Little girls that would have ended up temple prostitutes had she not rescued them. Ministry is still going in India today, even though she's been long gone. Who's that? George Miller. What's he famous for? The greatest people on planet Earth who God's touch has been on their life inevitably have been people who will condescend. We read their biographies and we say, we want to be just like them. God says, okay, well, how about you leave your six-figure job, move into the ghetto? No, that's not what I was talking about. I was going to, be like, I to jump over all that stuff and just be like you at my beck and call, you know, because George Mueller could pray and change the weather and have a million dollars sent to him. That's what I wanted, but I didn't want to go through the actual nitty-gritty, grimy, dirty condescension. You know, ultimately, you think about Jesus' condescension, what he did to meet our needs. And I've said this before, you really can't condescend to another human being. The gap is so small, it's not even worth calling condescension. A street person, you could be there next week. On drugs, you could be there next month. Some, some criminal, again, if you say no, be very careful if you say, if you say no, I couldn't then you're totally deceived about who you are and what you are as a human being. The, the condescension between us and any other human being is just not much. But Jesus' condescension to meet our need, massive. Impossible to even fathom. So anyway, George Mueller, who's that? <laughs> the best of, those are the booths, Salvation Army. I put a quote online about him that I blew my mind the other day. William Booth said, I'm not waiting for a move of God. He said, I am a move of God. How arrogant. Go read about the guy. He was a move of God. And it's because he went to the poor and he was fearless. And he turned England on its head. And he had homes for prostitutes and he was rehabbing drugs by the hundreds. He had a book where he had a plan for England. It was called Darkest England and Way Out and the Way Out. He was going to reform all the social ills. But it was Christ-centered. This is not social gospel. This is Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, gospel-centered Christianity. 
And um, so anyway, who's that? It's not my dad. It looks like my dad, but it was not. It's Gil Moody. And how did he start? Chasing street urchins around the streets of Chicago. Ended up with the largest Sunday school in the country. Abraham Lincoln went and visited him. I mean, it started with the outcasts. Condescending. He used to ride his pony through the poor neighborhoods and pass out candy to get kids to come to a Sunday school class so they could hear the gospel. Who's that? Charles Finney. Unlike Finney, his theology wasn't perfect. He had, a, he had an integrated black-white university, Oberlin, in the 1800s. He was an incredible evangelist and brought revival wherever he went, but he was a rabid, not rabid because that's a disease. He was, a, <laughs> he was if he, whatever the good side of, you know, whatever. Just, he fought against slavery, tooth and nail. Who's that? Harry Beecher Stowe. So these aren't all preachers and missionaries. She's one of the great literary geniuses of American history. She wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She used her efforts to, to come against the great social ill, one of probably two in America's history, which are racism, slavery, and then the other one is abortion. But the one in her day was, was slavery. And she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I told you this before. When everything turned over and the Emancipation Proclamation was announced, the theater where she was, just what we could do as human beings if we, we would just do it, do what God told us to do. The theater where she was, the whole crowd, you know what they were doing? They were quoting her, chanting her name, because this book was the best-selling book in, in that whole century. And it got everyone, it opened everyone's eyes to the, to the social, and she was Bible-believing, born again Christian. Of course she knew that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was at the center of it. But she said the slavery of one class or race of another class is from hell and it's evil. So she wrote a novel and it blew everybody's eyes. Who's that? Wow, she's good. William Overforce. This is, this, is the, the, uh, uh, this is a politician in England who fought for decades to bring an end to slavery in the British Empire. Also, Bible-believing, born-again Christian who condescended. Who's that? Come on. That's David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, cross the switchblade. How did he start out his ministry? He's a pretty, pretty nice life, uh, just a pastor, small-town pastor. He reads about the gang kids in New York City, 1950s. He just walks right into the middle of it. Scrawny white kid in the middle of all this. And go read it. It will take you for a ride. He saw the miraculous power of God, saw the Holy Spirit move in and change him. That's condescension. He had, a, he had a pregnant wife back home. There's other ways to serve. The Lord needs people right here where you are. There's all kinds of excuses for not doing it. What about the middle class? Who's going to go to the, who's going to go to the rich? Who's that? Anybody know? She gets in a lot of trouble because she because she's a, so excited that you know, maybe she overshoots sometimes. But I wish God wished more people would. You know, God probably says I wish more people would overshoot. Tidy Baker. She's the one who picks up every street kid she finds and tells them their love and they have a home and. Some of the stories of her life are amazing. Again, gospel-centered, Jesus lover. This, a, this girl hasn't necessarily changed the world, but very inspirational girl. You know who that is? 
Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, Katie Davis. Um, she wrote a book a few years ago called Kisses from Katie, where she's just like a nice middle-class college-age girl like a lot of people here. She just read the Bible. She said, wait a minute, what are we doing in America? She said, I'm going to Uganda. I'm going to adopt a bunch of orphans and I'm going to do this Jesus thing for real. And she says, she said, I gave up my cute clothes and I gave up my cute car and I gave up my cute boyfriend and I gave up all this ridiculous stuff and I went and condescended. And she says, you know, she's one of those people that's kind of like, I have so much joy and satisfaction now. I don't know what to do with myself. And then one of my favorite people, come on, you got another one. Jim Simbola, Brooklyn Tabernacle. One of my favorite stories from him is uh, when, I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, bum, sleeping out on his back step, David Ruffin in his stink and urine and vomit and alcohol. He hears the choir, which is pretty amazing. Grammy winning choir. They don't care. They're just worshiping God. They don't even care about the Grammys, but they are amazing. He comes in the church and uh, it's Easter. Pastor's shaking hands. He's like, oh. and then it's human minds like, oh, there's a bomb. He's going to ask me for money. David Ruffin goes, I don't want your money. I need Jesus. He said he fell into his arms. And Jim Simula said that stink, he said, turned into fragrance because Jesus said, this is the smell I came for. Why does God move so powerfully in their church? Why do they have such amazing, you know, he was building a building. He needed $5 million. How worldly. No, he was doing it so he could do more of this kind of stuff. He needed $5 million. He was in South America praying. I think it was five, might have been four. He got two phone calls. Covered. I wish God loved me like that. He does. You just got to do this stuff. So passage that changed my life was this one. This was the passage that rang my bell before God showed me Exodus 34, 6 in his heart. It's a bunch of religious people saying, why does God seem so far away? And God basically says, because you're not doing the stuff. I condescended to meet your need. You condescend to meet the needs of the people around you. Is not this the fast which I choose? And he's kind of playing with this word fast because he said, we're even fasting. Like that's, oh, you're twisting my arm. I guess I have to give you what you want. God's like, that's not what fasting is. He said, this is the fast that will get my attention. Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the bands of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. You're like, well, I'm into preaching the gospel. Christians used to not do those kind of ridiculous kind of divisions. If evil is crushing a person, they need the gospel, but they also need the evil to stop. You know, a, a girl who, who's being sex trafficked doesn't just need to pray the sinner's prayer. It's all right. See you on Sunday. Good luck with that pimp and those abusive clients and your crack addiction. Hope that all works out for you. She needs, she needs us to meet all her needs across the board. And Christians used to understand that. Nope, all we got to do is get her to heaven. And I think that the church at the 20th century, the, the Bible believing born again movement just, just hit a bog. It used to be this juggernaut that would take over whole cities and countries. We don't study that anymore. The Bible believe, it used to take over whole countries. But 
Divide your bread with the hungry. When you see the naked, cover them. Don't hide yourself from it. Oh, I don't see it. I didn't see those homeless kids on the way back from church. I didn't, didn't see them. No, it wasn't in the paper today that uh, you know, some person was shot and there's three orphan kids left. What could I do anyway? You know, so don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call. The Lord will answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. Why does God seem so far away? We're not doing the stuff. What is the stuff? It's condescending to meet the needs of the broken and the lost and the oppressed, etc. First and foremost, the gospel. Bringing the gospel to people that are under Satan's power. But there's all kinds of manifestations of evil that are crushing the life out of people. And we need to be involved in those places too. Because those pe the people who are being oppressed by those things are often the easiest ones, the first ones who will respond to the gospel. But then we have to have homes for them. Then we have to have programs, not just to give them stuff, but to give them dignity, teach them their worth, teach them they have gifts, they have brains, they can produce, they have, you know, they, they can be as, as productive as any other human being. But that takes a lot of work. But that's what we have to be about as Christians. So this led me out to start helping street kids. And I started seeing a lot of miracles, but then I found the churches weren't really interested in that. And I won't go into all that, but I got in a lot of trouble. Jesus, look at his first sermon. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. It's right after his baptism being full of the spirit. News about him spread through all the region. He began teaching in their synagogues, was praised by all, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. Because it was his custom, he entered the synagogue. So this drum roll, first sermon, what's he going to say? Came to the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up and read the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was handed him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. We've been given the baton. He came to the poor, the oppressed, the broken. Usually people are poor because there's a lot of crime and sin and all kinds of stuff keeping them there. So you have to deal with the whole package. And then James, a lot of you have memorized the whole book of James or a lot of James, because that's what we do here. High song used to joke that I'd meet somebody and I'd say, hi, my name is Tad. Memorize the book of James. Trap. Because I, I want you guys to know what's in the book of James. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. What's it all about? What, who's right? Are the Protestants right? Are the Catholics right? Are the Mormons right? Are the JW? Who's right? Are the Baptists right? Are the Pentecostals right? Well, if they don't have this, they ain't right. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. If that's not in the bullseye of your religious package, you're doing it wrong. What's that called? Condescension. Keep yourself unstained by the world as well. Walk in moral purity, honesty, all that character stuff. But then the second chapter goes right to talk more about the poor. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. 
If a man comes into your church, basically, with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, sit here in a good place. Glad to have you in the church. Maybe we should hustle you along to the elder board because you're making six, seven figures. And there comes in a poor man. and oh, You don't have anything to give the church. You say, stand over there. You smell. Stand over there. Get away from my wife. You're making her nauseous. Or sit down by my footstool. Get on the floor so everybody knows you're not as important as the house. He said, you've made distinctions among yourself. you become judges with evil motives. If you're a real church, you love the poor. You want the poor. You welcome the poor. You tell the poor. You are as important as anyone else that created the universe, died for you, has an amazing plan for your life. And our church is going to make sure that that happens. That's a church. So God's kind of woken me up again. I'm sorry. I can't do short sermons. I try. I try. I can't. Yes, I can. Don't say that to me. You can't do it. You can do it. But that's, what, that's, that's where I want to go with this church. I want to be a place where, and, and we're already doing it. We've already, we've already done it. We're not the most efficient. You know, we don't, you know we're kind of messy. We have scraped people straight off the road, and now they're thriving and doing amazingly well. We know how to do it. But I feel like God told me it's not in your bullseye anymore. Like when someone walks in and they're a mess, you should be like, oh, yeah. Yes. A rich person walks in, eh, I don't know if we get, that we'll get too far with them. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We'll love him. We'll give it a crack. But the poor guy, he's probably going to be easy in terms of surrendering to the Lord. Now, some of the problems, yeah, it'll take some time. It does take time. And effort. We love the rich. God loves the rich. We love the middle class. God loves the middle class. But Jesus targets the poor. And the Bible says don't neglect the poor. And don't put the rich over the poor. Don't put the middle class over the poor, which we just do naturally. And I'm just, I just felt like with this, all I can think all week long, I was thinking of, he ascended to heaven, and I thought, but where did he came from there in the first place? What an amazing condescension. And we shouldn't just read the creed to parrot off truths. They should be applicable. Every spiritual truth should change your life. So you should think about the ascension of Christ. Think about his condescension and say, if that's who he was and that's what he did, then that's what I'm going to do. So that's all, my, that's all the scriptures I have. But I just want to challenge you guys. Um, as your pastor, that's what I'm going to be pushing for. I want, ultimately, I want to be a place. We got houses all over the place and we rent facilities. And this wasn't an intentional church. But I would like to streamline this machine so that we have places for a broken person where they can live. We have jobs where they can work. We have new relationships. We have, and that... The people, when they come to this church and they say, I'm going to be a member, it's not because they're putting up with this, but it's because there's a fire that's burning in their bones. And they say, we're going to go after the broken. And we're going to manifest who Jesus is by being just like Jesus. And we're not going to forsake the gospel. You can't get anywhere with anybody if they don't accept the gospel. But we're not going to neglect education and housing and, and health and all those other things. 
Because that was that great reversal was a great mistake, is what it was. And the greatest Christians in history, they did it's the whole package. Jesus healed the body, he fed, he fed the hungry, he gave dignity to the foreigner and the outcast. So anyway, you can't ascend unless you descend. So let's make a commitment to descend and get involved. And uh, I'll also say this, don't just run out the door and move a poor person into your house. It do, it's a skill set. Be discipled. Learn the Bible. Learn how to walk with God and learn how to cooperate with the body because it's a team thing. And you don't have the goods. And a lot of people get wiped out because they're burning hard to go and adopt kids or take some homeless person in and they burn their house down or they assault their children or something. They think God has forsaken them. No, you have to get, you have to acquire the wisdom to learn how to do this. But in this church, we, we know how to get it done. We're getting it done slowly, but surely in the lives of people. But I think that God could do something amazing with this group. But we all got to be on board and we all got to figure out what our role is and be committed to it. So let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Jesus, that you descended. It's just amazing. You took care of our problem, and then you ascended, and that's why we worship you. you it seems impossible, but you made yourself even more glorious. And we worship you. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. Help us to be like you. And do the same for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.